0: Hey, friends, welcome. Happy New Year. We are glad to be back and glad that you uh, have brought us into your space today. Hey, we have a lot of things going on at Christ Community Church, so be sure to check out our website. Um, There are different ways that you can connect digitally, um, join groups, um, and also just experience other things that are going on, different events. So be sure to check that out and make sure to like and subscribe. Um, So enjoy the message. So glad all of you are here and for those who are going to be wa- who are watching this man welcome I am t- so excited um, about what God has in store for us as a church this coming year and as a part of that we really want to set aside some time some energy and focus to seek him in together in unique ways and so one of those opportunities is a three-day fast that we're going to start on Monday. Everyone is invited to enjoy, to uh, experience, maybe a better word. Uh, Enjoy could be, uh, and it usually is, but not necessarily in the way we're used to, but to experience a fast. A fast, if you don't know, a fast is when we just intentionally um, remove from our lives something that we enjoy, and we do that in order to focus more fully on the Lord in that season during that fast. Typically fasting involves um, not eating food, but fasting can involve um, removing from our lives uh, social media or television or video games or whatever. And the cool thing about fasting is when you're removing something from your life, then you have more time and heart energy to give to the Lord. And so that's the idea is during these three days as we're maybe giving up food or something else, we can seek the Lord more earnestly. And it's a really, it's a way to re-energize our relationship with Jesus. So if you want more information about how to fast, there are some brochures at the info area, the, the QR code, if you click on that, um, it'll bring up some, um, some information. You can also find some stuff on our app. So then the other opportunity to seek the Lord afresh This week is at the end of the fast on Wednesday night. We are gonna be gathering here in this room for a worship and prayer evening. It'll start at 6.30. So I just wanna encourage you to participate in one or both of these activities this coming week just so that we as a church can come together and seek the Lord, just beginning this new year by earnestly seeking God together. Okay, today we are continuing our journey through the book of John. We are currently in this section known as the Farewell Discourse. Um, And so in John chapters 14 to 17, Jesus is sharing his last words with his disciples before he is to be crucified. Now, up to this point in this section of the book, if you've been following us, you've been a part of this, you know this is the case. Up to this point, Jesus has been focusing on this idea of us having an intimate, relationship with him, right? A relationship of loving obedience. That was John 14. A relationship of of abiding, of remaining like a vine, a branch that's connected to a vine. That was earlier in chapter 15. Jesus went so far as to describe our relationship with him as a friendship. We talked about that just a few weeks ago, this friendship. So Jesus, here in this this, this, uh, farewell discourse, He's inviting us, he's urging us to experience this intimate friendship with him where he speaks to us and and, and we walk with him. Everything up to this point in this section is just beautiful and life-giving and so inspiring, which is what makes the verses that we're looking at today feel like such a jolt to the system. Beginning in verse 18 of John 15, Jesus basically says to us, by the way, being in friendship with me may get you killed. Are you okay with that? See, in this section, Jesus starts talking very openly about something that we don't really like to talk about. And that is persecution, being persecuted, being mistreated, being hated because of our friendship with Jesus, okay? So let me read the first part of this passage, beginning in verse 18, here we go. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. When the advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about that. Them. Okay. On that cheery note, um, I'm, I'm honestly, we tend to skip over passages like this or skim passages like this because they feel to us like an anomaly you know, out of the ordinary circumstances that we really can't relate to. But I I want to challenge us on that. What Jesus is describing here is not unusual. It is not uncommon. It is normal. Sometimes I think we forget that much of the New Testament was written to people who regularly faced persecution for their faith. The Apostle Paul, who experienced his share of persecution, wrote these words to Timothy. Look at this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of us have memorized that verse? How many of us have underlined that verse in our Bible or have it maybe hanging in our living room? Uh, I get, I guarantee we don't, right? Look, and I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. What I'm trying to do is help us realize that this persecution, this is a major theme in the Bible and yet we don't really pay much attention to this theme. We skip over it. And the reason is because most of us here and those watching this live in the United States, a nation that was founded on this principle of freedom to practice religion without being persecuted. So it's no wonder that we have a hard time relating to, to, to what Jesus and much of the New Testament are talking about in passages like this. But look, friends, we need to pay attention to this. We don't want to skip over this, skim over it. We need to pay attention to this. The, The reality is Christianity has been and continues to be the most persecuted religion on this planet. It is estimated that 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. 70 million. And of that number... Two-thirds of those have been killed since the start of the 20th century. So persecution of Christians is not decreasing, it is increasing. Open Doors USA estimates that right now 360 million Christians, right now, in in our world, 360 million Christians live in places where persecution is what they describe as significant. The worst current offenders are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, and Libya, to name a few. So think about that. Nearly half a billion of our brothers and sisters in Christ live in places where significant persecution is happening, including imprisonment, torture, beheading. This is the world in which we live. And this is exactly what Jesus said to expect. Friendship with me may get you killed. Now, the practical question for us in our situation, our context, is this what are we supposed to do with passages like this? Historically speaking, I mean, this hasn't been our experience in the United States, right? So, what is the relevance of this passage for us? What's the relevance of this teaching for us? Two things, okay? One, this topic is really, really important for us to know about because, as I just said, millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ are in this situation right now. We need to pray for them. We need to advocate for them. Our, our church supports missionaries in the Middle East, amazing people in the Middle East who are planning churches, and they regularly face the reality of death for following Jesus. Friends of theirs have died for following Jesus. I've been in, the, I've been in their homes I've been in their homes. I have worshiped with them. These are real people. They are dear friends of ours who live in places where following Jesus, every day they wake up knowing that following Jesus today could cost me my life. And they're still following him. They are still following him. Their, their lives, their faith is inspiring. It's challenging and, and it, it, it can, and I hope it moves us to pray for them regularly pray for them. Okay, so that's one reason why this topic is important for us to explore. But that's not the only reason. Secondly, this topic is, I think, really important for us to explore because our country and our culture seem to be moving in this direction. Not in terms of killing Christians, but certainly in terms of canceling, vilifying boycotting, suing, spewing hatred towards those who follow Jesus and who testify regarding his teaching. And again, Jesus told us to expect this. We need to be ready for this. Look, we need to have a biblical framework for this not be shocked and surprised by it. We need to have a biblical framework for this. And this passage gives us just that, okay? Gives us a biblical framework. So in this passage, there are two critically important questions that Jesus answers for us regarding this reality of persecution, okay? So first question is a why question. Why does the world hate Christians? Why does the world hate Christians, why is Jesus saying that here? And, and that world that word hate is kind of a, a, a you know evocative word. It's a strong word, but it's exactly the word that Jesus uses. Verse eighteen: If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Okay, so so why is there often a hatred? towards those who follow Jesus? This is a really important question to ask because some, some Christians claim that they're being persecuted and hated, but the reason they're being hated is because they're behaving like jerks Uh, and, you know, spewing forth hatred and just being rude and disrespectful to people they disagree with and the way they talk to people and all that. Okay, look carefully at the verse right before Jesus talks to us about being hated by the world. That was verse 18, right? Look at verse 17. This is my command, love each other. See, genuine followers of Jesus are to be marked by love, Period. Our God is a God of love, and we are to be marked by that same love, a love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that is willing to lay down its life for someone else, even our enemy. And yes, a love that is willing to lovingly speak the truth, to testify of Jesus as described in verse 27. Jesus says that here. Not not weaponizing truth, but lovingly proclaiming truth. See, this love thing is vitally important in terms of how followers of Jesus are to live. And it's very relevant to us in this discussion about persecution. And it's very easy to forget this love, for us to forget this love thing. Um, and here's something I've been thinking about. Feel free to disagree. We can talk about it later. But I've just been thinking about this, this idea and I want to just put it out there and have you chew on it a little bit. I think... <clears throat> In the hearts of many followers of Jesus in America, something that has happened is that we have subconsciously, um, we subconsciously begun to elevate personal and political freedom over love. Elevating freedom over love. And both are important in a healthy society, right? Freedom and love, both important. But from a biblical perspective, you can disagree, but this, I want you to think about this. From a biblical perspective, I think love is a higher value than freedom. In other words, here's what, this is how it relates to what I'm talking about here. Our freedoms may be taken away from us as a form of persecution, but even if that happens, we are to continue to love it doesn't change our mandate at all. Governments can take away certain freedoms, but they can never take away our capacity to love. See, to follow Jesus is to live a life of love. So being hated for being a jerk is not persecution. It's just being a jerk, okay? What what Jesus is saying is that as you follow me in love, people may hate you and vilify you and mistreat you. Which brings us back to this question, why? Why will people hate us if we're living lives of love? Well, Jesus tells us, look at verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. See, why does the world hate Christians who are living lives of love? Because we don't belong to the world. We, we, we are not of this world. The reason the world hates followers of Jesus is not an issue of love. It's an issue of lordship. It's not an issue that we love too much. It's an issue of lordship. See, a Christ follower is someone who has given their complete allegiance to Jesus. Jesus is their Lord. Jesus is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong who determines what is good and what is evil. Jesus is the one who determines how we are to treat other people and how we are to use our bodies. Jesus is Lord. See, a person's decision to follow Jesus as Lord will naturally rub against a culture that is not following Jesus as Lord. See, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says that we don't belong to the world. Let's talk about this word, world. Um, it's, the, it's the Greek word, cosmos. And this word can mean a, a, a few things, depending on the context. So this word, world, in, in scripture, it's used a lot. It can mean earth. It can mean like the earth, the planet we're standing on. Okay, that's, that's one. It can also mean people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This, he's talking about, that, that word using that is talking about God loving each person on this planet. Okay, neither of those is what Jesus is talking about here. The context is clear. The way Jesus, and Paul often uses cosmos the same way, the way Jesus uses this word cosmos is to, right here, is to describe the system of our world the values, the priorities, the beliefs, the behaviors, the way our culture thinks and makes decisions. Okay, so. Um, pastor and author on um, John Mark Homer um, defines the world. Uh, I want to put this on the screen because I, I think it's really, really helpful. This is how he defines the world. As a system, a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. There's a lot there. I think he nailed it. In that definition, the world is the culture we live in. In other words, it's the accepted values of our culture that are integrated into the mainstream of life. And here's the problem. I mean, that's true of any culture, right? A culture sort of people integrate into culture and all that. Here's the problem that Jesus and the biblical story point out over and over again. Our culture has been thoroughly corrupted by humanity's rebellion against God. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. <laughs> so we've been corrupted by our rebellion against God and by our, our continual attempts to define for ourselves what is good and evil rather than God defining that. We don't want anyone to define what's good and evil, right? Right. We don't want God defining that. So what's happening even more recently is that we're, we're living in, in what many people describe as a post-Christian culture. You may have heard that. Let me explain, let me just talk about what that means. Post-Christian culture, and I think it's absolutely right. <clears throat> so decades ago, 40, 50 years ago, <clears throat> we lived and maybe even more recent, I don't know, but, but decades ago, we lived in a culture in which societal norms... Right, The norms of society, they kind of naturally directed us towards a moral grounding in Judeo-Christian principles and, and a view of things. So I'm not saying it was a Christian culture in that everyone was a Christian. No, what I'm saying is it was a Christianized culture that was significantly influenced by Christian values and Christian morals. It was a Jesus-sympathetic culture in terms of morality. That's no longer the culture that we live in. The culture we live in, again, the post-Christian culture, that's what we mean. The culture that we live in is a culture that is rapidly pushing God out while elevating its own God, the God of self, the autonomous self. What do I want to do with my body? What do, what I think, what I feel. See, in our culture, the autonomous self determines what is right and wrong. You determine what's right and wrong. I determine what's right and wrong. I can't tell anyone else what, it's it's just this, itself is what determines what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. So in a culture like that, this is our culture, the autonomous self is God. In a culture like that, what happens to a group of people who rather than worshiping the God of self are instead choosing to align their lives with Jesus as Lord and are patterning their lives on his teaching regarding sexuality or money or violence or the value of each and every life. There's going to be some tension, right? There's going to be some tension. There's going to be this increasing realization that we don't fit as well as we used to. Decades ago, followers of Jesus fit fairly well into the moral stream. We don't fit as well anymore. And in a very real sense, I want to, a word that I want you to chew on and think about. I think it's really significant. Um, in a very real sense, we're exiles. Followers of Jesus are now exiles. We aren't the majority. We are exiles. See, exiles are a group of people who live in the midst of a culture, but they don't belong to the culture, right? They live in that culture, but they don't belong to it. They're exiles. We are exiles. See, our citizenship is in heaven. Our Lord is Jesus, not self- Not money, not sex, Jesus is our Lord. And what Jesus is saying to us as his followers is don't be surprised, don't be surprised if as we live out this loving allegiance to him, certain segments of our culture are not gonna be happy about that. Now, one of the most obvious and I think significant areas, and this is true historically for centuries, um, but it's, it's really true today. The most obvious and significant area in which this tension is increasingly happening is in the area of sexuality. See, our culture's view of sex is that sex is just play for grown-ups, right? Whatever feels good is okay. Wherever our desires lead us is to be celebrated. Do whatever feels good to you. We, our culture celebrates that. But a Christian view, a Christian worldview urges us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him, and and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's right out of Romans chapter 12. See, God declares that our physical bodies are not simply pleasure machines. Our physical bodies are not pleasure machines to use to fulfill our own desires. No, our bodies belong to him. Our bodies belong to him and are to be given to him in worship and loving obedience. See, sexuality is is a place in our culture where these two very different value systems come crashing into each other, and and, and with very different consequences. The interesting thing in sexuality in our society is, as as our society p- pursues this view of sexuality. It, there's a ton of carnage that very few people are talking about, right? The damage of pornography having on marriages and, and children and all this stuff and sex trafficking and all. But, it, but it, it's this idea that this it, almost this not recognition that that pathway is actually doing tons of damage. Okay. And so what, what I'm saying is, I don't want us to hear that, oh, God, wants us to obey him in sexuality and he's ruining all our fun. No, it's actually the opposite. Obeying God in our sexuality brings life and wholeness. When our sexuality is actually used in the way we were designed for, created for as an expression of love, not lust, it brings life. And so there are two very different results from these values that the world is pursuing and that God encourages us to pursue. And so because of that, there's a very significant tension between these two um, and an opportunity, perhaps. Nancy Piercy, who's one of the most, one of the foremost Christian female intellectual voices today, um, evangelical, she, she wrote in her book, Love Thy Body. Here's what she said. What Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. See, I think she's right. I think she's absolutely right. Our culture exalts sexual pleasure and sexual activity. What, Because of that, then, what more powerful vehicle would there be to actually delineate between an allegiance to self and an allegiance to Jesus, but our sexuality? And this is a huge challenge, right? Because what often happens to exiles is that rather than shaping the culture that they're in, their values get shaped by the culture. Around them. Rather than influencing culture, we become colonized by culture. We we start to embrace our, our cultural values of pornography or polyamorous relationships or sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage. We start to fit into the world's values because our allegiance to Jesus has been co-opted. We're no longer bothered by watching or doing things that violate God's loving design for our sexuality. We become numb to it. We we blend right in, right? No one is bothered or offended by us because we're just blending right in. We're living the same values they are. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to follow him in every area, including our sexuality. And, And in doing so, when we're following him in our sexuality, doing so, realizing we may not be treated very well by our culture. I mean, ironically, I don't know if you probably noticed this, but there's a moral policing that's beginning to happen in our culture, but it's not Christians who are doing this. (laughs) Years ago, people come, oh, Christians, moral majority, trying to inflict their morality on other people. You know, that, that was decades ago. What's happening now, there's a moral policing, but it's not Christians who are doing it. It's those who are opposed to the values of Jesus. They're the ones policing. Those who lovingly hold to a Judeo-Christian view of sexuality are increasingly ridiculed, vilified, boycotted, canceled, fired from jobs, mocked. And the question is, what is our response going to be when this happens to us? What is our response? Anger? Or are we going to vilify back? Or are we going to keep loving and keep following Jesus? Okay, so that's the first question. Why are followers of Jesus sometimes hated by the world? It's because we have a different allegiance than our culture. We have a different Lord. Which leads to the second critical question. What are we to do about this, right? What are we to do about this? A lot of Christians are kind of freaking out, right? They're freaking out as we see all these things happening in our society and hunker down and all this stuff, panicking, all this. And it's easy to kind of feel panicked and to feel this urgency to do something to stem the tide. What Jesus urges us to do in this passage is two things, two things. First, Jesus says, lean into my spirit. Lean in to my spirit. Throughout this whole passage on persecution, Jesus over and over again talks about his Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 16, verse seven. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away, Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Notice he's gonna be the one proving to the world. About sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, all the truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He'll tell you what is yet to come. See, Jesus is saying, look, friends, don't panic don't panic when you experience persecution or when you see people being mistreated because of their faith in Christ. Don't panic when you see this stuff happening. Instead, listen to my spirit. Let my Holy Spirit lead you because notice Jesus says, the spirit is already at work in this world. He's already at work convicting people of sin and of righteousness. So you, Jesus is saying, you're just partnering with me. You're just partnering with me as you continue to live out my values and my kingdom. Just lean into my spirit. Let's partner together. Don't freak out. Let my spirit lead you. And the second thing Jesus is saying to us in the midst of the reality of persecution, lean into each other. Lean in to each other. This is where the concept of church is so critically important. Not church as a building, Bible doesn't even use the word church in that way. The, the biblical word for church, ecclesia, is referring to a gathering of people, a community of people who regularly gather together to love Jesus and to give him their wholehearted allegiance. So in, in his book, um, Live No Lives, I referred to it earlier, and I'm gonna refer to it again in just a sec, but John Mark Comer, great book, John Mark Comer writes these powerful words. He says this, he says, we need to recapture in this generation this powerful and biblical understanding. Listen to this, that the church is a counterculture. The church offers the world a different vision of what life is all about. The church is, as Pastor John Tyson refers to, the church is a beautiful resistance. I love that. For too long, Christians have responded to the erosion of values in our culture by becoming fearful and angry or by looking to politics to change things. And I think we have missed the vision Jesus has always had for the church to be a city on a hill, to be an alternative community that lives in a beautiful and compelling and loving way without compromising their values. In in 1 Peter 2, Peter, Apostle Peter, who was persecuted, significant persecutors, ended up being martyred. He writes to a group of Christians. Guess what he calls them? Exiles. 1 Peter, you can check it out yourself. Here's what he says Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, in other words, you don't belong in the world you're living in, you're exiles, you have a different value system, different Lord. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Just talked about that, which wage war against your soul, right? Urging abstain from sinful desires. Look at this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is writing to a group of people who are being persecuted and his message to this alternative community is walk in holiness and walk in love. That's it. Walk in holiness and walk in love. See that the church provides a relational community in which we can pursue and love God together because friends, we need each other. In the midst of this world we live in, in the midst of this relentless pull on all of us to be colonized by the values of our world. We need a community of faith where, where, where the Bible is being taught and we are growing together in love and in our allegiance to Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to be colonized by our culture and the light of the gospel is just going to grow dim. You know, I, I honestly can't say it any better than John Mark Comer does in his book, Live No Lie. So I just want to read a, a portion to you. Just listen to this. He writes this: there, there is a tremendous opportunity in our cultural moment for the church to come back to her roots as a counter culture. And while I hope I don't end up crucified in 50 years in some kind of Huxleyan secular progressive dystopia, I've already made peace with the obvious reality: I will never fit in. I will never be cool. I will never be liked or well respected or admired by our culture, and that's okay. The word church itself in Greek means those who are called out, it is not a community of comfort, but of calling. He continues, we must move beyond a network of loose ties. He's talking about church, just kind of, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Just a network of loose ties to become a robust counterculture that's not just against evil, but for good. We're for love. We are for joy, for thriving marriages and families, for children brought up in loving delight, for adults moving off the egocentric operating system to become people of love, true freedom, justice for all, and unity in diversity. Man, that vision of church inspires me it inspires me. Rather than cowering in fear at a culture that no longer shares some of our core values, we can become a counter-cultural community, a beautiful resistance that demonstrates a passionate love for Jesus and an authentic love for each other and for the world. See, in in that beautiful Christ-centered community, we can together face whatever mistreatment, whatever persecution comes our way. We can face it because we are facing it together. Let's pray. <laughs> God, I want to be a church like that. We want to be a church like that, Lord, that doesn't get distracted and fearful and anxious. We lean lean into your spirit letting you lead us and just trusting you to lead us and trust that you're at work in the world. And then we lean into each other. We need each other, God. We need regular teaching. We need to be just in community and sharpening and all of those things. We we need that. Otherwise, we're just alone and isolated. We're just going to be colonized by the world and we don't want that. We don't wanna be colonized by the world we live in. We wanna be a counterculture. Where Jesus is Lord and we love you so much. We're just like, this is who we're aligning our lives after. You, Jesus, not self, not what our world says and podcasts and things we read, not, not any of that. We're, we're just, you are our Lord. And we wanna align our lives upon you, God. We give our allegiance to you, Lord. So help us be a light, a city on a hill, help us be a light in a dark world. Not because we're shouting louder, but because we're offering the world an alternative community. God, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you came not just to forgive us individually for our sin. You came to create that community. You came to usher in a new way of living, a new kingdom, a new community. And the church is the expression of that. God, we don't do it very well. We want to do it better. But would you fill us? Would you help us? So I want to encourage all of us here, just as you're quieting your heart before the Lord, let's just ask the Lord, Jesus, where where am I? Just all of us ask this question. Where am I being colonized by the world? Where's my allegiance to you become dim because I'm buying into some... World, the culture's perspective on something. Would you show that to us? God, we repent we acknowledge our hearts are so vulnerable and we we need to be in community and in your word and in prayer. Just all these things God not because we ought to, it's we, we need it, God, because we want to be people who are faithful and who love you and who our allegiance is you. So God, would you take these places we've just acknowledged to you and would you fill them with your spirit? Help us be a city on a hill community that reflects your heart. And God, I want to pray for our friends in the Middle East. I pray for our friends in Afghanistan. I pray for brothers and sisters around the world. We pray, we unite our hearts to pray for them, God. That in the midst of persecution and just losing jobs and status and being beaten, and um, family members taken away, all of that, God, we can't imagine what that's like, but our hearts just go out to our brothers and sisters around the world, in North Korea, and Afghanistan, and, and China, and other places, Lord, we pray you would encourage them, you would strengthen their faith and their allegiance to you, God, and Lord, I, I pray that our faith would reflect theirs, God places we've grown too comfortable, would you help us follow you the way they do, Lord? So I pray for them and I pray for us. God, when persecution happens, Lord, may our faith remain strong in you and may our hearts continue to be loving as we trust you, Lord. So God, we love you, we love you. Thank you for the privilege of following you. God, set us free right now. We have these several minutes here, which is such a privilege just in the midst of chaotic where We are here. We have these, this opportunity to worship you, to give you the glory you deserve, to love on you, to give our allegiance to you. And so set us free to do that, whether we're standing or sitting or kneeling up front here, however that's happening, God. We love worshiping you. You've set us free to do that. Thank you, Lord. Alright, so if there are things that you've heard today that felt inspiring or convicting or there are just things that came up and, and you are interested in talking to someone or praying to someone, that there's a button here that you're able to click that is, is going to somehow connect... To someone on the other on side our on our site <laughs> whatever um, just do that there's someone here I would enjoy praying for you and hearing the things that are going on so take advantage of that opportunity and I'll talk to you soon